Welcome to Hustle and Thrive, a working culture podcast where we talk about living, working, and thriving in arts and culture. My name is Yomi John, marketer at Working Culture and host and producer of this podcast. And I'm Stephanie Draker, co-host and program manager at Working Culture. And our guest today is Shaliza Jamal, a certified equity and inclusion coach and founder of Curated Leadership, uh, also a frequent collaborator with Working Culture. Hello, Shaliza. Hello. How are you both doing today? Great. Great. Together, uh, we are bringing you a new three-part series on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the arts sector, uh, developed in partnership with Curated Leadership. And this particular series is in response to a couple of workshops we did in February that were facilitated by Shaliza. Uh, and we had a great turnout, and it was a good reminder of why this conversation is so needed. Yeah, and it's only made sense for us to do a podcast series so that folks have something to come back to. And for today, we will introduce the part one of the series, which is about diversity and inclusion and why they are not the same thing. So um, we'll just jump right into the questions. Um, So Shaliza, you've been educating people about inclusion for many years and teaching people about addressing inequality, inequity, and racism. Um, How do people conflate or confuse diversity and inclusion? Well, that's a great question because I always say that diversity does not equal inclusion. And I find that individuals and organizations think that having individuals from different racial or ethnic backgrounds in their organization or on their stage automatically means that they're diverse. Or if they put a statement, like a solidarity statement, for example, for Black Lives Matter, that they are diverse, right? That they're being inclusive by statements and often by superficial means. And diversity, I find, is often seen as just skin color. And inclusion is often seen as hiring folks of color. But that is where it starts and not not where it ends. And so for me, I see people using equity, diversity, inclusion, diversity, equity, and inclusion as this like big mishmash of terms without really understanding what they mean. And so in that way, people are using these terms interchangeably without really understanding what they mean. Yeah. um, So this is not the best analogy, but it's similar to how people will confuse race, ethnicity, and nationality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they don't understand that, like, it's just different. So that's how that conflation happens. Yeah. And I just speak to that just for our podcast listeners who may have that same question, right? Race is a social construct, not based on any biological basis. It was created through colonization and white supremacy and through the Atlantic slave trade. And race is a biological, is not a biological factor at all. However, the social construct of race is characterized by sometimes shared physical features, um, uh, language, uh, areas of origin. And then ethnicity is that ethnic background of shared rituals, language, customs, um, sometimes religion, things like that. And nationality is really that legal bit about where you hold your passport, for example, Canadian. So I'm really glad that you brought that out as well, because these terms are always kind of confused. And I think people have good intentions and they say diversity and inclusion, but they don't really know what that means for sure. Absolutely. So instead, instead we see folks trying to maybe prioritize one over the other rather than viewing them as a continuum of principles and practices that inform need. Um, And, and, you know, sometimes even treating it a bit like a, like a checklist when it really isn't that. Um, So, so that kind of leads us into our our next question uh, as a point of clarification for, for folks, you know, what are the proper definitions of diversity and inclusion and what does that look like for the arts sector? Absolutely. So there's a variety of differences uh, between individuals and organizations. And diversity really encompasses race, gender, ethnicity, age, religion, sexual orientation, education background, uh, mental and physical abilities, also our opinions, our values, our political views, our lived experiences. Those are all what uh, create the diversity of who we are. So it's really not only what we look like, but our diversity of thought, 
right? And that all comes together. And the way that an organization's culture and values and behavior make an individual feel included and welcome is really what inclusion is. So diversity, again, is the variety of differences between individuals in an organization. And inclusion is the way an organization values and uh, values individuals' culture, right, and makes them feel welcome and included. And an inclusive climate is one where a person's uniqueness is integrated into the workplace. It's a, it's a point of an asset. It's a value, right? So it's not just that, okay, I'm going to hire a person of color and that's it. I've done my part. But they've integrated that person's racial ethnic identity, their religion, their lived experience, their abilities, whatever it may be into the fabric of that workplace. And I also want to say there's diversity, inclusion, but I also want to add belonging. And I want to add belonging because uh, an organization can work to make folks feel like they're included, but they also must make sure that they feel like there is a sense of belonging. They're diverse, they've made the place inclusive, but have they measured where folks feel a sense of belonging? And studies show that when more people feel valued, they engage more with work, they're more productive, they engage with their coworkers, they have more confidence, they perform at higher levels, they share their true thoughts and ideas. And really thinking about, you know, you asked about what does it look like in the art sector? Well, it's good for all sectors. Benefits of inclusion include creating an environment that respects individuals for their talents and their skills and their abilities and values that difference that they bring. And they're able to think outside the box or they're able to reflect the diversity in the community. They're also able to contribute to innovation, uh, which the arts are, are really well known for, right? So they, they can reflect the and contribute to the innovation and have better decision-making processes, greater perspective taking, which is very important. And also, when we think about inclusion, we are eliminating unfair treatment and discrimination by including folks who don't always have a seat at the table, right? And we're encouraging a workplace where everyone can thrive. And we're also delivering organizational results by engaging and retaining diverse talent, diverse audiences, diverse colleagues. And so for the art sector, for me, this is really important to both diversify, include and be create belonging for arts workers, for artists, teaching artists and administration. Because the arts have always been a creative industry that has been innovative. And if as an arts organization, we are not thinking about perspectives of those in our community that are diverse, by way of being in Canada and the diversity we have, then we're missing the mark. So we need to be able to not only be responsive to who our community members are, but also take a stance to really work towards equity and justice and liberation. And for me, the arts have always been that place that takes risks, that's innovative and creative, and that is at the forefront of social justice. So for me, it's crucial that the arts sector today, at this time, really embrace diversity and work towards inclusion, belonging, and equity as we move forward in 2021. It's, it's time that we shift. Oh, thank you, Shaliza. I'm, I'm really glad that you started off with the focus on the cultural workplace, um, because it's been my experience in terms of having these discussions around diversity and inclusion that, um, you know, oftentimes, in the arts sector, the workplace isn't necessarily where organizations look to first to do that um, very important um, uh, diversity work or inclusion work. There, there tends to be an emphasis placed by some organizations on diversifying audiences first or diversifying membership first. And um, I wonder if you could speak to, you know, why it's, it's important to, to start with the workplace first. Absolutely. And so in my experience, so I was uh, an income manager through the Cultural Council Careers of Ontario and work in culture. So I had the experience and I've worked in many arts organizations, mainly in theater organizations. 
And what I found is there was a lot of emphasis on getting more members and getting getting younger membership, for example, and getting, you know, the young professionals into the art space. But what happens is, whether it's young professionals, whether it's people of color, whether it's increasing the LGBTQ2S plus uh, audience, if we are working on that, but our organization has not yet done the work, it's setting the system up for fail, right? So for me, it has to start internal. You know, the, there's a lot of analogies, and I'll start with this one. If we haven't done our homework, if we haven't started at home to do the work, then how are we going to invite people into our house and expect them to behave in that way, for example? So I think it's really crucial to start internally create that culture shift, get the buy-in so that when you're bringing folks from various backgrounds and lived experiences into the membership, that they are getting that experience and that they too feel included and a sense of belonging. But if we start external with our audiences, we can alienate our staff. We can end up with a lack of clarity over our objective and goals right? And then we have no buy-in and we get a lot of resistance. And that will then definitely translate later on, even if it works at first, to our audience members. So that is a really important thing uh, to note, definitely. And I'm glad you asked that. Always start internal so that you've got folks who are the champions, who understand the difference between diversity and inclusion before we're going outwards. And I do see a trend with a lot of organizations I'm working with, that they are really starting internal before going outward facing to their membership and audience. So great question. Yeah. And it just, and as you said, like when people, when the focus is starts from within the organization, then people who work in that organization are more motivated to do that diversity work because they feel valued. So they feel the motivation to actually implement the same thing to the outward audience and like networks. I think now that we have a clear understanding of what diversity and inclusion is, and from for me, what I got from this conversation and all the things you've said is that inclusion really is a responsibility, right? So how, because it's a responsibility, how might the confusion and the conflation that we we bring to these two concepts, how do they, how could they be damaging in the arts and in society in general? Absolutely. And I, so I think that your question and what Steph asked are very similar in the sense that the conflation of diversity inclusion can lead to employees feeling tokenized. And so when I say tokenized for folks who may not know what that means, it's being singled out, being a diverse hire, being hired as the only black ballerina, being hired as the only, um, you know, Asian violinist, being hired as the only LGBTQ2S plus administrator. And that doesn't feel good. Nope. It can also be inauthentic. So in that way, you are going to be alienating. You are going to be perpetuating these systems of internalized and of interpersonal oppression. And we're going to be perpetuating the same cultural bias and othering. So for me, tokenism is really centering uh, whiteness and white supremacy and saying, okay, well, this is the norm, but we want to diversify. So we're just going to sprinkle in a little bit of diversity and we're good to go. And that is the way the arts did it in the past, right? And so we have to consider those damaging effects and that we're going to be doing more harm than we're doing good. And so very, very important to think about that. And I think also our audience members, our community members will also know that, know this and they'll notice as well. So when we are uh, working towards diversity and inclusion, if we want to be authentic and grow, we have to think again about what are the conditions that we're creating in our organization, in our arts organization, so that we can create a long-standing tradition of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And why does it matter? Because it matters for accountability and for humanity. 
Otherwise, it's going to be just a flavor of the month, and we're going to go back to our status quo. And some organizations are fine with their status quo. We know that membership and donorship is often from the top 1% from older white folks. If that's where an organization wants to go, then that's where they're going to stay. But we really have to think about what it means for inclusion. And I, I wanted to talk about something that I'll get into a little bit later, but this idea of when we are hiring even, and when we are thinking about diversity, if we're hiring just one person with a diverse perspective, whatever identity it is, whether it's um, a disability, whether it's a different um, racial background, religion, whatever it is, when we hire in that kind of rainbow, it becomes tokenistic. But also, that person is not going to be retained. They're not going to stay. So a lot of experts talk about if we're thinking about expanding and diversifying, whether it's our artist pool or whether it is our um, employee base, it's always good to hire in groups. This is new research. That if we hire diverse in groups, we not only are making a commitment and a statement, and we've hopefully already done the work to set the stage before these people come, but also they have some sort of allies in the organization. That's one part of it. And then secondly, when they're there, what are the mentorship and sponsorship opportunities that we have? So if we're going to hire someone just because they're a diverse hire and we don't have a pathway for their success, we haven't asked them at the point of entry what their goals are, then we are also just replicating the status quo and hiring for diversity and tokenism. So a lot of things to think about, and it is really damaging if we are uh, narrow focused and we're not thinking about inclusion and belonging when we consider diversity in hiring or consider diversity in our artist pool. Yeah, I just want to go back to you bringing up the flavor of the month thing. It reminds me of another podcast episode that we did on here. And it was on tokenism. And it, we talked about um, how when Pride Month rolls in, everyone's scrambling to like have that uh, um, queer representation in their content programming and whatever. And it's like that scrambling, should, it, it, it creates this sense of people being viewed as an after, afterthought and not considered from the beginning. And it just, in terms of like hiring people, it just doesn't really help them see that they're being valued beyond their identity. Absolutely. And to that point, you know, in the school board and in Canada, we have like Asian Heritage Month, Black History Month. And I think they're very necessary to recognize the social historical implications and to also recognize the, the history and um, the resilience of the communities and to create awareness. They're definitely important. But to tokenize is just that, right? To only have someone queer on a podcast or uh, in a showcase during Pride Month or only feature a Black speaker during February. And those are very damaging and perpetuational. Uh, per those are things that perpetuate this idea of tokenism. And so I think organizations can push back and perhaps they want to have programming during Black History Month, but they want to do that all through the year. And so I think that's a great point to make about programming, that we need to be strategic in our statements that we make through our programming. I know a lot of folks I talk to say we specifically won't do things in a specific heritage month because we're more than that. You know, I'm more than just uh, Asian or I'm more than just black or I'm more than just queer. And I don't want to be asked to speak only one month of the year. Right. And for an example, Black History Month is every single day, 365. Right. We need to be learning and living, celebrating not only in February. So we have to move away from those things. And I think that comes down to and it's not a it's not a difficult fix in my mind. If we're looking at programming and subscriptions and we're looking at our, our season, there's a lot of ways that we can think about being inclusive without being tokenistic. Right. And, um, you know, we'll talk about this, I'm sure. But 
engaging in the staff and community members that already exist and not being the only one or only few to make these decisions. Because I think that's another damaging impact in the arts is one or two people who are the decision makers for the whole organization. I mean, it, it reinforces that inclusion doesn't just happen. You know, we, we do really have to design it, um, you know, for the communities in mind. Um, and it leads me to another question about, you know, with that in mind, how should we be approaching diversity and inclusion for the benefit of, of groups that have been deemed marginalized or have been uh, deemed as underserved within our, our organizations and uh, in our sector? So I think this answer for me is twofold. There's the strategy side. And then there's the human side. So I think from the strategy side, I think that there are many things that organizations can do. Uh, they can create or conduct an audit uh, of who is in their workforce, right? What are their belief systems? So some would call it like an equity audit. They can collect data. Who is in their organization? How long have they been there? They can hire strategically in groups, like I said, for example. They can measure engagement, right? They can create a strategy and vision planning because it is a long game, right? And go through an equity cycle with a consultant to really work on understanding diversity and inclusion. So that's the one piece of it. So there's a very strategic part where they can go through what I call an equity cycle, identify the gaps, uh, you know, create action planning, create deliverables and implement those action plans and deliverables. And then the other side of how should we be approaching diversity and inclusion for the benefit of marginalized folks, the human side and the other side, which is kind of in that actionable piece or spotlighting that, is training is one way, but it's really about listening and understanding. So for me, it's about thinking about where, where is our organization? Do we have some diversity in our organization? And really focusing on many different things, which could be, depending on the size of your organization, sponsorship and mentorship. So mentorship is advice and guiding somebody, but sponsorship is bringing them to the table. Is there someone new to your organization that demonstrates talent, right? Are they from a marginalized group? Can you bring them forward? Can you create a mentorship program for BIPOC folks at your arts organization? Can you have employee resource groups or task force, not only made up of people of color, but of all people who are interested, so building that allyship, that are working on diversity initiatives, inclusion initiatives for your organization? Can you start to build the allies up? Because many organizations are at different stages. So the first kind of key thing, aside from that strategy and the other side, is building the allies and the accomplices and the advocates in your organization. So who are the folks that are really committed to this? Who wants to see the change and not just for the dollar signs? And have those folks be the champions, be the advocates, right? So these two things can be happening simultaneously. There can be the strategic equity cycle, the data collection, the gaps, the SWOT analysis, and the action planning. And on the other side, there can be organizational work being done with the people, the humans in the organization, listening, learning, focus groups, mentorship, sponsorship. And together, those things are going to, in my opinion, start to create a thriving culture where diversity is valued, inclusion is created, and belonging is engaged and maintained. Well said. I, and I think, you know, that's really where that equity piece that you were talking about earlier becomes mm -hmm. so important. Because as you said, I mean, so many organizations are at different stages of their level of understanding um, of, of where they are in, in this process. And it's one thing to strive for more diverse representation, um, more inclusive venues. But if we're not also taking into consideration some of the very specific barriers and systems um, that might be um, in place for certain communities uh, in, in terms of holding them back or, or preventing entry uh, you know, into the organization um, somehow, how can we possibly design something that would benefit them? Yeah, we're doing it without being informed. And, that, and that's the biggest problem, that folks think that, you know, especially after the murder of George Floyd, which is so relevant, 
um, today, almost one year later. You know, folks think that they have to keep up with trends. And I think when we look at it from a human perspective of why we do the work we do, that is when people will authentically flock to you, not only employees, but members. And so I think doing the work in an authentic way, in a thought out, deliberate way is is the way to go. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that human element, uh, it really helps people understand that, you know, with um, with, you know, highly, um, you know, high priority instances and events that have, you know, thrust particular communities into focus, like um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, I, I'm thinking even most recently for myself, you know, being very cognizant um, as, as a woman of, of Asian descent of the, the rise of Asian hate crimes, that, you know, while these uh, high, um, um, high visibility cases are happening, they're not necessarily isolated instances for the affected community. And mm-hmm. that in many cases, these communities have faced those challenges on a daily basis and continue to do so even after that message of solidarity is issued. Absolutely. So it's not enough to just put um, something out on a one-time basis. There's continued work that really needs to be done. I totally agree with you. And that's the steps that organizations have to take, right? Every day, day by day, it's a commitment. Having to do all that continuous work and constantly thinking about it every day is really, really important. And I know that some concepts have come up through our conversation, like in terms of we've been talking about race, we've talked about ethnicity, marginalization. Could you share some more key concepts that we should be keeping in mind while implementing a diversity and inclusion approach? Sure. And I think the big one is anti-oppression. And I think that anti-oppression is important to understand because that is the umbrella. And so when I talk about anti-oppression, it's that action to disrupt the power structure. So oppression is uh, systems and structures that maintain power for some and penalize others, right? It's that oppression. And so anti-oppression is that action. And so when we think about oppression, there are four types of oppression that I I use to talk about that. So there's the ideological oppression, right? So organizations can be aware of what are the beliefs and values that they have, the ideological oppression. Where do they come from, both from an individual and an organization level? There's institutional oppression. Those are the laws and the policies that govern our everyday life. But there's also institutional oppression that occurs in an organization, right? Policies and laws around maternity leave, around sick leave. We're seeing that so importantly right now. Policies around hiring, like many different things. Then we have internalized oppression, which is that stereotype threat or the oppression that someone faces from seeing the perpetual ideological values of oppression about perhaps their racial group. And then we have interpersonal oppression, And that is oppression between people and the belief of superiority of one group over another. And interpersonal oppression is what really fuels anti-Asian, anti-Black, and anti-Indigenous racism. So together, all of these types of oppression are part of our upbringing, our lived experience, how we uh, experience life. And so I always say perspective-taking is also a key concept we have to think about. Um, When we think about critical race theory, critical race theory theorists talk about counter narratives and perspective taking is about understanding counter narratives, right? Uh, There's no single story. So really thinking about that. Other concepts are anti-racism. So you've heard this a lot. Um, Dr. Ibram Kendi has his book, How to Be Anti-Racist. And when we talk about being anti-racist, it's very different than being non-racist. It's kind of like diversity and inclusion. Folks talk about, well, I'm not racist. I don't see color, right? And that's just the neutrality is being non-racist. But the the anti-racist is, I do see color. I do see the inequities, the social historical impacts of racism. I acknowledge racism exists and I'm going to do something about it. Anti is really an actionable state of being. 
Other terms that are really important, and I see this one thrown around in arts organizations often, is allyship or an ally. An allyship is a term that has lost its value recently because it's definitely someone who stands with and beside and advocates for. But it's become watered down because people are taking on the term to you know, self-proclaim themselves as an, as an ally when allyship is much more than that. So a lot of terms that you'll hear are accomplice or co-conspirator or advocate. And those types of words are really, again, action-based. They're really rooted in the belief that you are willing to leverage and put your privilege on the line to advocate, support, and stand by and speak up for others. And that's why those terms accomplice, co-conspirator, or advocate are preferred over ally. So considering language is really important for arts organizations as well. I think that's those are some good key concepts to start with. But again, understanding the difference between equity and equality, just like diversity and inclusion, folks often conflate equity and equality. So equality is sameness. Everyone gets the same. Equity is fairness or accommodation. So it understands that everyone doesn't need to get the same thing because they don't require the same thing. I might need something different than you need based on my identity, my abilities, or historical and social um, factors of oppression that make it that way. Yeah, um, just I like that you bring up how allyship has become a term that people just use and it's been watered down and it's not the real meaning is not like being reflected it reminds me of it shows that people a lot of people are use use that concept for some kind of self-aggrandizing like um um feeling for themselves and it's there's a colonialist I'm not even saying the word right, colonialist tendency in the way people um, like embrace their, their form of allyship. And a good example is people who are like, say, art collectors or even heads of art museums. And they're like, have diversity of cultural artifacts in their spaces, in their homes, but they don't even respect the people who are the creators of that art. It's just to show that they are have a diverse way of thinking and you know um, they want to appear as worldly and knowledgeable. So I'm glad that you brought that up for regarding that that specific term. Absolutely. And you know, you also bring up another point, which we could go down another direction, but that idea of cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation. Yeah. And so sometimes folks think they're diverse by having diverse artwork or having a membership at a, a Black-owned ballet company or something like that. And there's a big difference between appreciation and appropriation, um, which is another whole topic. But just understanding those terms, I think those are also key for arts organizations you know, to look up and really think about is appreciation versus appropriation. You know, it really starts to speak to, you know, despite the fact that we know all of this about diversity and inclusion, that there's still some assumed, but also, you know, real and current barriers for people trying to move diversity and inclusion forward um, in the sector. You know, we, we've talked about oppression. Um, we've talked about a general unfamiliarity with the concepts. Um, you know, we even see some very real unchecked um, acts of white privilege impacting decision-making within the sector as well. Um, and so I wonder, you know, what do you see as other barriers that um, individuals and organizations are facing right now in terms of applying diversity and inclusion? So I think it does stem back to what I was talking about in terms of the four eyes of oppression. And white privilege actually stems from white supremacy. And none of us are immune to white supremacy. And so what I mean by that is white supremacy is a system and structure that creates and governs those four eyes of oppression, the ideological, institutional, interpersonal, and internalized. White supremacy is what tells our society what is valued over other things. White supremacy 
is what makes it okay for a black man to be killed by a police officer. White supremacy is what makes it okay for companies to say black lives matter and then go on to be discriminatory. And white supremacy is what makes it okay for black children to be suspended and expelled at 42% the rate of their white colleagues and students. And so I think we really have to think about white supremacy as the system and structure that we're part of, that values one over another. And I say that because it is about disrupting that ideology. And I have it too, right? I have this need to succeed and always be productive and do well. And those are colonial ideals that I have to go, go, go. As a woman of color, I have to work harder. Those are ideals of colonial white supremacist thinking. And so we have to think about that as a barrier. Our ideology is a barrier. And so when organizations face barriers, it's not only that they're not equipped with the knowledge, but there's also an immunity to change because folks come from all walks of life and they can feel like they're losing a piece of the pie if we are being diverse and inclusive. So for example, you might've heard folks say, it's not black lives matter, it's all lives matter. And when we say something like that, it's all lives matter, we're negating the experiences of black folks. And we are having this idea of greed that if, all, if, if black lives matter, that means my life doesn't matter. So I bring this up to say that I think this is a similar barrier that individuals and organizations face. They're not strategic in their planning. They are not consulting and having communication strategies that are effective for their teams. Oftentimes, senior leaders will make the decisions to have diversity training that's mandatory or have other initiatives and no employees are consulted and engaged. So people act out of fear and they disengage, right? They push back. They don't want to do the work. So instead, if we provide opportunities for folks to engage, like task forces that are voluntary, if we are able to provide some monetary means for those task forces to value people's voluntary time, if we are able to... um, also have communication strategies clear with folks and engage them in our strategies, then we can get more buy-in. So there's that buy-in piece is a big barrier. And of course, the second one, the first one was white supremacy. The second one was buy-in. The third one was definitely lack of knowledge about where to start. And I say you can start small. You can start small by consulting your colleagues and creating a vision and mission statement on your website. That's a start. And that will hold you accountable to much more, right? I think that organizations also, arts organizations specifically, also have barriers regarding funding. And it doesn't mean that you have to hire a diversity and inclusion manager. In fact, I've been seeing 20 posts a day with every organization hiring a diversity and inclusion manager or director or specialist. And I think that's very tokenistic because hiring one person to do the work of a department is very cumbersome and it is a huge piece of emotional labor. So I think funding can be an issue, but there are lots of grants out there. You can hire a consultant to support you, but it's really about doing the work in a slow, methodical way. So acknowledging that white privilege exists, acknowledging the barriers that exist in terms of immunity to change, creating a communication strategy, and really allowing folks to learn at the pace that they're ready to. Just because you go at a snail's pace doesn't mean you won't gain momentum, right? So there's an impact effort matrix. Some people like to have quick wins. Some people like to do things that are derailers, that are happening fast, low impact, low effort, and they're just derailing your efforts. But the momentum builders and the transformational things will take time. 
it is a journey. It is a process. It is definitely not a race and not a final destination. Crucial, crucial, crucial points to make. You know, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, there's no one size fits all kind of approach for for organizations. And, and, and you know, one thing that, I, you know, I think you I mean, you're definitely getting to with the examples that you brought up is, um, you know, folks need to remember that when we say inclusion, you know, particularly when we're trying to include people into a workplace, include people into an organization, we have to think about what we're including them in. And it is very much a system that was set up to privilege very specific experiences, very specific communities um, that uh, that are rooted in um, colonial practices and 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 ways of working and ways of uh, as as Yomi mentioned um, earlier, collecting and and presenting um, other cultures or or you know groups that are different from what um, what 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 we're including them into. So excellent points all around. Thank you. No, I think that's a great point too, right? If what are we what are we bringing them into? And if we're not ready to do the work, um, then we're setting someone up for failure, and and that's not fair either. Yeah. So we've covered so much already and hinted at a lot of things about how organizations can begin to think of applying an equity inclusion approach, and to be more specific. Um, how can organizations or people in general really be better allies and advocates first and foremost? Sure. So if we start with that, I think I, I think about it as awareness and education and action. So the awareness and learning piece and awareness and understanding piece, I should say, is do the research, do the work. Maybe you want to read a book like, um, so you want to talk about race by Ijioma Loa. Maybe you want to do a book study at your organization, at your workplace, and talk about the book chapter by chapter. Maybe you want to start at home and have difficult conversations with your children or your partner or your neighbors or your family, right? I think that is a part of allyship. So knowledge and understanding. Um, Where are you at? Take the Harvard Implicit Association test. See where your biases are. Check them, right? That's that awareness and understanding. Recognize and name that racism, bias, inequality exists. And then begin to learn. Really important, though, don't ask your friend of color or your queer friend or your friend with a disability to be your teacher because that's not their job. That's your role to learn. So the awareness and understanding is key. Be aware. Start to notice things around you. Start to question things around you. And then the education and learning, as I said, read the books, go to workshops, listen to podcasts. I think there's a lot of learning. I'm really into podcasts. I also follow different people on Instagram and I follow threads and I learn from there. But there's a lot of learning we can do just by observing as well, right? It's not about getting a formal certificate or certification in DEI, for example, And then the last one for my people who want to be allies and advocates is action. And action doesn't always mean talking or doing. It means listening. This is really important. When you're acting as an ally or an advocate, it's important that you're not speaking for a community or a group of people, but you're working in partnership with. Because if you speak for, you are negating their right and their power to have their rights explained, asked for, and you're assuming what they want. So be in partnership. That can look like donating, volunteering, supporting local arts organizations um, in areas or run by people of color or indigenous folks. So all of these things together are really about you doing the work first. Because I really, truly believe that organizations can't make the shift if they don't have a collection of wonderful people on board. And everyone, I believe, human beings have great intent, but they don't know where to start. And there's a lot of guilt and shame that's unproductive. So if we can do the work not only at our workplace, but on our own time to learn, to ask questions, to find those brave and safe spaces to ask questions like you know, attending workshops is a great place that you can ask questions. 
or having that critical friend, another really important thing. In those ways, we can start to grow and develop and shift our mindset. And then in our workplace, we can grow and shift and question the policies, the practices, the programs that have been here forever that aren't working, that are not serving folks from diverse communities. They're not inclusive. They're not creating and fostering belonging. We can challenge those power structures. We can think about disrupting this top-down approach of management, of decision-making to more community-based community agreements. And a lot of this, the work that I'm saying, a lot of the things that I'm saying are really rooted in Indigenous knowledge and philosophy. And not only Indigenous to Canada, but a lot of our Indigenous practices. I'm South Asian, and a lot of the teachings are oral, are community-based, are about empathy and listening. And so I think uh, the last thing I'll say is to listen and lead with empathy. And that's, that's what I think is the key. Doing the work, knowledge and understanding, learning and education, action. And the key is listening and learning and leading with empathy. It's, it's just sad that people feel shame about these kinds of situations because, you know, they're like, oh, okay, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to start. But really, it's like really just expanding your reach and you have to meet new people to learn new things because we don't know everything. And when you expand your reach and like meet new people, talk to new people, and then you find out what you're missing. And then you can actually be like, okay, this is where I can start. And and sometimes it is those, those sets of small steps that you were talking about earlier, Shaliza. I mean, um, you know, thinking about whether there there is hesitation for some organizations to start the work or to revisit conversations, to have those difficult um, discussions and uncomfortable moments, um, that, that really sometimes hinders folks unnecessarily. And um, that and understanding just how one measures the impact of, of learning and unlearning and, and moving towards inclusion. Um, I, I wonder if you have any, any comments on how organizations might do that, might actually measure um, whether they have been able to, to move that needle. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to measure, but I will say that a lot of organizations want a quick fix. And I think measuring inclusion, belonging, and diversity is a long game, but it can be done. So I think in having inclusion and belonging indices, so if you have an index that is measuring uh, how employees feel in terms of, do they feel like they are engaged at work? Do they feel like they are valued? Do they feel like their opinion is heard? Do they feel like when they have an idea that it is um, uh, accepted by their peers or by their seniors? Do they feel like there's opportunities for growth in the organization? All of these are sample questions that one can create to measure inclusion and belonging. We can also see through things changing. Are there diverse audiences attending? Are there diverse uh, and inclusive opportunities for folks to apply to the workplace? Are we retaining BIPOC and LGBTQS plus folks, right? Um, are we seeing a shift in those numbers? So I think it is really important to collect that race-based data, to collect the other ident identity quotient data as well to see physically, have we changed in one year, two year? And have we changed in a meaningful way, right? Are we creating those opportunities, like you said? Are we bringing some folks into an inclusive space? So all of those things are, I think, extremely important, everything that you said. So again, really thinking about when we measure, this can be a simple survey. It can be surveys that are starting out as Google Forms, as, um, you know, survey monkeys. And then it can go on to more sophisticated measurement tools. But the key is that we need to measure to know where we are going, right? And measurement also looks like identifying the gaps. So asking our employees what is working, what is not. I also really believe in 360 feedback. So I think organizations can also measure uh, learning and the impact of learning by having 360 feedback where it's not just the employees reporting to the managers, but there's a lot of feedback and a lot of multi-directional feedback and reporting and measurement happening. So I think those are some of the ways that I would say that organizations can begin to learn 
about the shifts that they're taking and if they're impactful. It's a holistic approach. We've said a lot, like this topic is one that should always be revisited. And it's it's kind of sad that we haven't reached a point in society where everyone's just like understands equity, understands inclusion, but it has to be repeated over and over again just so we can be better because we all have our biases. And I mean, that's just the way it is, but we're always working towards being better and being inclusive of everyone so that everyone feels valued. Um, thank you so much, Shilisa. This was really, really good. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm so glad that we had this opportunity to get together because this is exactly one of the learning tools that someone might listen to and it might really expand their perspective and give them a new piece of information that then they can share. And I think that's how learning happens. And I really believe in, you know, this calling in approach that everyone is at different learning um, points in their life and learning journeys and that if we are working with empathy and if we think about eliminating that sense of shame and guilt and just learning that we can be able to have these conversations with our peers that, hey, did you know that diversity doesn't include it doesn't equal inclusion? And here's why diversity is X and inclusion is Y. And let's talk about it. Right. What are we doing in our organization? Are we doing diversity? Are we doing inclusion? Which one are we at? Right. So I think that's really important. And I really thank you for partnering with Created Leadership and with me to have this very important conversation. Um, and I hope that it's really beneficial and helpful to those folks who are listening. Yeah. And like we mentioned at the beginning, this is a three-part series. So for part two of this series, we will go deeper into talking about equity and focus on accessibility and how identity affects access to opportunities. So Shaliza will be here as well with another guest. Steph will be here. We'll be here all just having that conversation and I'm looking forward to it. So everyone stay tuned. Thank you. Yes, stay tuned. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Working Culture. It's hosted by Yomi John, featuring co-hosts from the sector and edited by Santiago Bidoya. If you like our episodes, we want to hear your comments. And please subscribe. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And for more Hustle and Thrive, check out our website at creativeworksconference.com. Join us again.